Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. During my 15 years in investment banking, I witnessed the brilliance of analysts, the buzz of the trading floor, and the chaos of the financial crisis. Today, we draw back the curtain on the world of high finance. I want to know if investment bankers really deserve their bonuses. And in today's dumb question of the week, what are systemically important banks? Okay, let's get into it. Now, I have to say, I don't really know that much about investment banking. I just live in London and see those looming towers in Canary Wharf and all the people going into them. And I think, what are they doing all day? What are all those people doing? And the strange thing is, when you work in one, you often wonder the same thing. You you know, in any company, it's the same. You don't know everybody. You just know the people in your little puddle. Sometimes you interact with other people, but it's really hard to work out what's going on initially. Now, my path into investment banking was an odd one. I started off writing risk systems, software for risk systems, and then I gradually moved into the front office. So we'll talk about all these different roles eventually. But when you start, you just don't really know what's going on. You know, you sit at your desk, you do your job, you come in, you go home. You're a cog in the machine. Indeed. And I just had a baby and I was upset because I had to leave her behind. So it was very difficult. But I imagine you were a brilliant cog in that machine. Well, I mean, I'm not really a kind of company person. I don't really like being part of a big company. It really depends on who's in the puddle with you. And I think it was day three of my time at the investment bank. We saw the Twin Towers being attacked and collapsing. Several of the people that we worked with knew people who were in New York at the time. So it was a very difficult entry into the industry, I'd say. It was a very scary time. And we didn't know if there'd be an attack on our building. Of course, I was at a French bank, so we were well away from the city. So it was unlikely. But of course, it's always at the back of your mind. And you always think, well, why do people hate us so much? You know, what is it about banking which generates so much hatred? And that was a theme that ran through my whole career, which is a misunderstanding of what banking is and general hatred, I'd say, of bankers. But what do we mean by bankers? I still don't quite understand the different roles in here. So you said you moved into the front office. What's the front office? Does that mean you get a nice glass window and could wave at me down in Islington? (laughs) So this is the kind of essential split that you get in investment banking. It's between the front office. These are the people who are in sales, trading, in the investment banking department, IBD. Basically, the people who speak to the clients. They're the face of the bank, if you like. And then you've got a huge army of people behind them. Usually it's a ratio of at least five to one. Oh, really? Of all the people that make all the stuff work in the background. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. And it's essentially a whole ecosystem of everything you could imagine a company needs. Like any large company, you've got people in the risk department, in IT, in HR. And then you've also got special things for investment banking, which is people who make the plumbing work. Think of these as the financial plumbers. These are the operations people who make sure the trades get booked correctly, that there aren't mistakes. And if something goes wrong, they fix it. But essentially, the front office are the people who get lots of money, the big bonuses, and the back office are the ones who are the closest to a nine-to-five job, although it's seldom nine-to-five. But usually what you find, even in the back office roles, you get paid more than you would for an equivalent role for a non-investment bank job. Is that because they're trying to pluck the best people or just because if you didn't pay them so much and they can see the companies making loads of money, they get a bit annoyed? 
I think it's the latter. I think it's part of the culture. It's still a lot less than the front office, of course, but they do expect a higher pay because it is a higher stress job and the reliability of the systems has to be very high. Is it like a thankless task then? It's just the back office get blamed when something goes wrong, but no credit when everything's running smoothly. That's pretty accurate. And they essentially are the people who keep it working and they get very little credit for it. Or at least they get some credit in the form of slightly higher salaries. And slightly cheaper credit. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. No, unfortunately. No, you don't get like a deal where you get lower mortgage rates or anything. Well, you get pretty good perks, but I don't think they're financial often. So what's the front office like then? These are the people you said are the face of the company. I just love that they made you the face of the company. (laughs) Eventually, yeah. But the roles, the most important roles are sales and trading. And people don't understand what those are. A salesperson is the same as someone who sells you shoes or cars or insurance. They're... Trustworthy. (laughs) Very trustworthy. Of course they are. And they're your best friend. Michael, hi, how are you doing? How are the kids? Oh, we should catch up again. You know, how's your daughter doing? Is she feeling better? Don't tell me you worked in sales with that patter. (laughs) We should go to that football match next week because I love football. Yeah, (laughs) you're very believable here, Roman. That's why I was never in sales. But these are the people with nice teeth, nice suits. So this is essentially a way of making clients buy stuff. Who are they selling to? So these are the people who sell products to the buy side. So this is the sell side, the investment bank, and they sell stocks, buy and sell stocks. They buy and sell bonds. They buy and sell derivatives. And then the people they sell it to would be people like pension funds, insurance companies, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, all of the people that manage money. And is it about trying to win repeat business? So are you approaching a pension fund, say, and saying, oh, do all your trading with us going forward? Or is it like, I've got all this stock somehow and I want to flog it, so I'll try and find a pension fund that wants to buy a huge amount of Microsoft or whatever? Like, What's the dynamic there? So the salesperson clearly wants all of that customer's business because for them it just means greater flow, greater profit, and a bigger bonus. Then you've got the trading desk. Often they'll sit literally next to each other. So you'll have the equity derivatives desk and it'll be split into the salespeople, the trading people. And I'd characterize the trading people slightly cruelly as kind of autistic order book savants. Rain man. (laughs) That's what you're trying to tell me. Yeah, a little bit like that. You'd never let them in front of a client usually because they're kind of slightly grumpy, slightly (laughs) slightly tetchy, a little bit too focused on their particular order book. But essentially, they manage all of the trading book for the bank. So they have to worry about risk. So they've got risk sitting over them with a stick. They've got the nice salesperson sitting next to them who they always suspect doesn't really understand the asset class. You know, they know it inside out, every aspect of the market and all the technicalities of pricing. Whereas the salespeople are really just the kind of smiley, pretty face of the bank. And they're the best friend of the clients. Yeah, so the trading desk knows how the engine works, whereas the salesperson is just trying to say how fast the car will go. Well, that's what they say, right? I just see what they say in the pub. And they kind of hate each other, but love each other because unless they work together, they're not going to get those big bonuses. So the way the dynamic works is that let's say that the client wants to do a trade. They call the salesperson. Then the salesperson says, look, I'd like to buy 10 million of Exxon 
could you work the price for me, please? There may not be a please. <laughs> They're saying this to the trading desk. They say this to the trading desk, and this happens live. Like, you know, they're just shouting across the desk, which is why they sit together. And then the trading person will come up with a price to buy or to sell. Usually they say something like, could you work the price? Because this is a big client. So they'll try and do the best they can. It'll reduce their profit, perhaps, but it'll get repeat business. Yeah. Because you can bet that that client will be calling other banks. And then presumably they unmute the phone to the client and say, I've got it at this price. Do you want to close the deal or whatever? Yeah, but of course, there are all sorts of other incentives. Now, you can imagine, if you're the sales guy, you're going to want that client to trade with you. So anything you could possibly do to make them trade with you rather than Goldman or Morgan Stanley or any of the other investment banks, anything they can do to avoid them going to someone else down the street. So what can they offer? Well, one of the things they offer is research. So they say, look, If you trade with us, we'll give you access to research and you don't have to pay for that, or at least that's the way it used to be, before they unbundled research and trading. This is MIFID 2, is it? This is MIFID 2 from Europe. And the idea was that all of these hidden incentives, which may make it more expensive for clients, because if they can take you to a rugby match or if they can offer research, they may not offer you such a competitive price. That's the kind of research I like, going to the Six Nations. <laughs> Was this your job? Were you part of the research? Well, I moved into research later on, yeah. So let's say they want to speak to one of the analysts. Well, what happens is the salespeople go on marketing trips where they take along an analyst or two analysts and they visit each of their clients that they like, okay? <laughs> right. Where they want to build a relationship. And then literally you sit down with the portfolio managers and eye to eye, you exchange ideas. And that's incredibly valuable for a fund manager because imagine their job, right? They're managing millions. They sit in a room with a Bloomberg terminal. If they screw it up, they lose their job. If they don't catch opportunities, they lose their job. So they want the best ideas. So if they can sit down with someone from Goldman or Morgan Stanley or any of the other big banks and their best analysts, you know, it's obviously in their favor. So you've got the fund manager sitting there. Romin walks in through the door, sits down behind the oak desk and says, let me tell you about bonds. (laughs) Is that what's going on here? (laughs) Well, the thing is, the person on the other side of the desk knows about bonds already. So what you've got to do is essentially tell a good story. The best analysts, I think, generally, were the ones that would come up with the best narrative. Whether that helped the people on the buy side is questionable. Yeah, but Roman, you hate narrative style investing. But that was my job, right? I had to come up with the narratives. Oh, you were a self-hating analyst. (laughs) Well, they wouldn't have you on Bloomberg TV if you didn't have a story, right? You couldn't just talk about the technical stuff. You had to tell a story. But because there were such large numbers of analysts at the investment banks, there were so many ideas that these banks produce as a result. You know, there was always something that you could talk about. So it was quite an easy job from that point of view. What was the best idea you ever came up with? Italian bonds. Italian bonds? Probably. Because, you know, it was just during the sovereign debt crisis. And a lot of people thought the entire market would implode. And these things were trading at pretty crazy yields, which then compressed massively. And of course, there was a huge profit to be made with that. But yeah, I mean, we came up with various good things, which were interesting. But look, did it add any alpha, any outperformance to the people who read the research? Maybe. 
Well, maybe the fact that after Mifid 2 rules, where you had to pay explicitly for research and you couldn't bundle it all together, as far as I understand, the amount of research being done has shrunk massively. So maybe that would suggest people don't value it so highly if they're not willing to actually pay for it out of pocket. Exactly. And guess what's happening in the UK, Michael? Oh, we're going to roll back the rules, are we? <laughs> yeah. So we're going to rebundle it, which is a huge step backward, I think. The city wants it, though, right? Of course they want it, because for them, it just kind of greases the wheels of essentially putting trades towards their bank. Unfortunately, it doesn't work in the favour of the people who trade with the bank or their customers, i.e. us. So I think that's a huge step backwards. I don't think it's going to help the industry a lot. They're going to be looking for a lot of new analysts. Time to come back, Romin? Uh, I don't think so. Not for now. <laughs> so then we've got the kind of research people, and that's split up into different worlds as well. You've got your single stock analysts. There are lots of those. Think of your average super bright graduate who's very ambitious, very articulate, and they'll cover one sector usually. Maybe they'll specialise in one particular stock, but they can call the management of the company and literally pick their brains to see what's going on, unless it's a blackout period. Yeah, that's what I've never really understood. So we talked before about how insider trading is obviously illegal. You can't trade on the back of privileged private information that a company shouldn't be sharing unless it tells everyone in the market at the same time. So surely getting on the phone to the management of a company as an analyst kind of risks getting something out of management that they shouldn't really be telling you. But there are very, very strict rules as to what you can and can't do. So let's say the management tells you something on a call. The only way you can distribute that to your clients is via published research, which anyone can access simultaneously. And do people stick by that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I started, compliance was just a joke. But by the time I left, this was roughly 2016, it was essentially all about compliance. And nobody would risk it because it just wasn't worth it. If you did that and you got caught, you'd never work in the industry again. So it was very strict. If you had any material non-public information, material just means that it moves the share price or the bond price. If you have that, you have to keep absolutely quiet about it. And in the compliance training, they made it really clear that even if you're out you know, playing squash with a friend, you can't talk about what you know. Why are you playing squash with them then? <laughs> Just because you like squash. No one likes squash. Play tennis. Or Padel now. Apparently that's a new thing. Have you heard of Padel? No. I thought pickleball was the new thing. Apparently not. So my daughter-in-law and my son-in-law-to-be were staying with us this weekend and they were trying to get me to go out and play Padel. Fortunately, I managed to just not do it. I don't even know what this is. I don't know whether it's hilarious that you're going to be playing it or not. Well, it's like geriatric tennis. That's the way to think of it. You've got a kind of little racket. And I think it's large balls. <laughs> you don't want to play little racket large balls. That's the wrong way around. It's called a padel ball. But you weren't playing this when you were an investment banker, were you? You were a squash. No, I wasn't. I wasn't playing squash. I wasn't spending much time other than going out drinking. That was our sport. That was our sport, yeah. Mostly Cristal Champagne. Okay, now you're pulling back the curtain too much. <laughs> you're going to lose sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> I never liked it. But you weren't a single stock analyst, were you? You were something else. Yeah, so the people who work in macro research, that's completely different again. So these are people who work on rates, foreign exchange, and economics. So you'll have a global economics department who feed ideas to the rest of the analysts. 
They're seen as being a little bit airy-fairy by the single stock analysts who kind of have their nose to the grindstone on particular stocks. But a lot of clients like it. For example, there are lots of macro hedge funds that would buy that kind of research. And essentially, your view there is about what's happening to interest rates, monetary policy, and your currencies. All of that would feed into the asset prices eventually. Probably the most important one was the oil price. So the commodity strategists would also be part of macro research because the oil price feeds into almost everything. And the clients found this kind of research really valuable, did they? Yeah, because it sets out a whole picture. It sets a kind of background for everything else. So if you've got a recession around the corner, then clearly that's going to stuff everything. It was quite funny. We had some of the salespeople, some of the sales and trading people joking about it. They said that we've been macroed, which basically meant... You've ruined it for us. Everything was fine with the companies, yeah, but the macroeconomics screwed us over. Companies say that all the time, though. It was never a bad management decision. The economy just turned against us. Yeah, and we didn't do anything wrong, of course. One thing I haven't heard you mention in all these different roles is quants. This is what I associate with investment banking, the kind of mathematical wizards. Yeah, these are the kind of mathematical pricing druids. These are the people that... <laughs> You've gone even harsher than I did. <laughs> I think druid is a fairly accurate description because nobody really understands the maths except for them. But what kind of maths are they doing? Well, often it requires Monte Carlo simulation because you can't price some of these exotic options without it. So, for example, if you're pricing some kind of interest rate derivative, it's really hard to figure out all the things that could happen to the yield curve that would affect the price of the asset. So they have to do all of these simulations to work out plausible future paths for interest rates and then feed that into their pricing model to see how it would affect the order book for the bank and the risk systems feed off that as well. Are they kind of like a black box, like a quant? (laughs) I don't mean the person necessarily, but the department. Yeah, it is a black box in the sense that even management don't understand it, but it can blow up the bank if they get it wrong. That must be scary then if you're the CEO. Oh yeah, it is scary and they are very well paid. Usually I'd say the traders are a little bit scared of... (laughs) Yeah, because the way the trading people think about risk is how do I hedge it? Because they've got the risk department standing over them. When they buy something, immediately they lay off that risk or they aggregate it with other risk or they do an offsetting trade. But that's how they price. So they're not long or short any one asset? They're not allowed to be, not anymore. That's why their pricing method is just their hedging method. How much does it cost me to hedge this risk? That's what I'll charge the client. Yeah. So the quant is essentially just producing a mathematical model, which takes that hedging plan and turns it into a price to the fourth decimal place. So those are the quants which work in the front office, and they'll be working alongside the sales and trading people usually. And sometimes they write research as well. So you get quant research, which is published on derivatives and derivative strategies, for example. Why haven't they been replaced by artificial intelligence? It sounds like it's ripe for it. Because you get new asset classes coming along all the time and you've got to work out how to price those. And that requires mathematical knowledge. And these people are usually mathematicians or theoretical physicists. who've got a really big numerical background. So for them, it's pretty easy to do that. And so what happens when a new asset class does come along? Is that excitement at the bank? Well, what's exciting is the bid offer spreads, because when something's new, 
you can charge more to trade it. So if you trade currencies, for example, with an investment bank, the buying and selling price, the bid off the spread will be almost zero. So that becomes a flow business. You take the number of trades, multiply by a tiny spread, and then you get your flow profit. Before you told me this was picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. Yeah, and now machines can do that very effectively. So you'll have a trading floor, which is essentially in a computer. You don't really need sales and trading for that. Whereas if you've got a new asset class, the clients don't understand it as well. Neither does the bank. So you have more risk. At least that's the justification. So you can charge a bigger bid off a spread. You probably do have more risk though, don't you? You do, usually because people don't understand the risks initially. So for example, with credit derivatives, there are lots of pricing models. One of my friends came up with a method called the saddle point method, Richard Martin, he was really clever. And unfortunately, what made it blow up wasn't the pricing models, it was the liquidity. This was a market which you couldn't sell. If, if markets went south, That'll who do would it. buy it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so theoretically, you could price it to the 10th decimal place. But what difference does it make if you can't sell this stuff as it goes into meltdown? Is some of the risk coming from the fact that risk models tend to be calibrated based on historical data? And if it's a new asset class, obviously that data just doesn't exist. Yeah, that would be one reason why it could blow up. Or it could be something like cryptocurrency, where there's an argument about whether it is or it isn't a Ponzi scheme. Not on this pod, there isn't. (laughs) (laughs) But this is why banks have been a little bit slow to get into that, despite the huge profits they can make with a huge bid off of spreads in crypto. Is there also a danger that when a new asset class comes along, like you say, it might be more profitable for the investment bank? So maybe there's a temptation for management to just go all in on this thing more than they should. So yeah, let's say that something does come along and it's exciting, it's new. You can bet that someone at the bank, the senior management, will say, look, this is really profitable and Bank X is doing it up the road. So why aren't we doing it? Let's just get a really good trader and sales guy and we'll do it too. So the problem is that these are senior managers who probably don't understand the asset class itself because, well, that's not their job, but they can see that it might be profitable. And so that's usually how they get into the asset classes that blow up. But why are they allowed to go all in on a new asset class? Is the risk department not going to stop them? Well, imagine you're a senior manager who manages the entire sales force at an investment bank. It's a pretty boring job. You know, they're just essentially a money factory. As long as you keep your risk in check, there isn't that much that is really innovative about selling stocks, for example. So I think they get bored. And also, they're so wealthy, they just go into this kind of God mode where they think they can't be wrong. They think, oh, I'm a genius. I've done really well in the past. That's why I've got this really senior job with this crazy bonus. And I'm going to innovate our business model to justify my huge bonus. Perhaps that's the logic, but it invariably leads to a blow up. But where's the risk department and their big stick at this time? Well, at this point, they won't have the models to price the risk, probably. And the attitude is, well, we'll just get risk people in once we've started trading this stuff, whatever it is. So you were presumably working in banking when there was some big blowups, like you were there in 2008, right? Is this part of the culture which caused it? Yeah, definitely. I think that certain statements by senior management would always raise eyebrows amongst people who've seen it before. So for example, I remember someone saying once, a senior manager at an investment bank I was working at said, 
the size of our balance sheet doesn't matter. Let me just explain why, <laughs> why that is a scary thing to say. So let's say you've got a lending business, yeah? The amount of money you make depends on how many loans you've got. What you can do is just say, well, we'll create a loan and then we'll just shuffle it off our balance sheet into a special purpose vehicle. So it's kind of in a separate company almost. Yeah. Or let's say you can borrow at 3%, you can lend at 4%. And what you can do is just lever up your balance sheet. So you just borrow more money in the corporate bond market at those low rates. And instead of having, I don't know, a billion in loans, you have 10 billion in loans. Or wait, you could borrow even more money. You get the idea. So your balance sheet gets bigger and your profits get bigger. All's good. But what happens to the equity on your balance sheet if the value of these assets that you're still keeping on your balance sheet falls? And that's where things can go wrong. That's now something that banks are very wary of because effectively what happened in 2008 was about bad assets on the balance sheet. It's a paper moving business, not a paper storage business. That's what people forgot. I like that. But what was it actually like in the thick of it when the world was blowing up in 2007, 2008? You've said before that the trading floor has a buzz about it. How intense was the buzz at this point? Well, the buzz was uh, differentiated. That's what's odd about it, because I remember that I was kind of working with a group called the Asset Backed Security Group. And these were working with a type of bond where essentially it's things like boat loans or mortgages, collateralized lending, which get packaged up into these special purpose vehicles. And of course, this was at the epicenter of the subprime crisis. But what was weird is these people, the ABS people, knew there was a problem well before the equity people even had wind of it or cared. You know, they were still buzzing along, equity markets were still trundling upwards well after this market had effectively imploded. So we were just watching the credit spreads on some of these products go up and up and up and up and then effectively blow up. And then many of these structures imploded. So why wasn't the bank taking evasive action at this point? If it can see from its credit desk that things are going south quickly, even if the equity desk is still chugging along, it must be going, it's only so long before this brings down the ship. But look, would you like to be the person that says, stop making money because there's trouble around the corner? Yes, I'm a contrarian. I would love to say that to a bank. <laughs> well, you'd have been fired, Michael. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, seriously, if they're making lots of money, Nobody complains while that's happening. And there was still money being made in other bits of the business. So, you know, I still remember walking down the stairs one day at the bank and the entire ABS desk was gone. They were all gone. Where were they gone? To the pub? Uh, no, spending more time with their family. So, you know, these things are very brutal when it happens and a bit shocking. And you just get used to it. You know, you get used to the mass firings. And that's what came next, of course. A lot of the products blew up. A lot of the banks who had kept the paper on their books suffered huge losses. Many of them had to be bailed out by the governments. And then the inevitable cycle of layoffs happened. Again, it was absolutely brutal. I still remember people crying in the toilets, you know, at the time of the layoffs. When I was in New York at the time, they have a different firing process where they have to read from a script and then you get escorted out of the building. And in the toilets, it was just sobbing, you know, I mean, it was just atrocious. The way I saw it happen was that we had these really burly people outside the entrance gates 
and he had to use an electronic card to get in. And the way people found out that they'd been fired was their card didn't work. And then the security guy would say, come with me, sir. And then they kind of marched them off into this kind of mass firing room. Yeah. It was just not pleasant. I remember on the news, the cameramen were just obsessed by trying to get pictures of bankers with cardboard boxes. They wanted that cliche shot. And it was funny because I saw one of my friends actually walking out of Lehman with his cardboard box. Yeah. It was awful. If I ever get fired from a bank, I'm going to leave with my stuff in like a wheelie bin or something. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to take the cliche route. But this is just the cycle of investment banking. They have these blow-ups, lots of people get fired, and often it's the same people that get hired back. And what's particularly galling is when the people who stick with the bank see someone come back at a higher salary because they had to be enticed back after being pissed off by being fired. So that's going to gall your existing staff. Naming no names, Roman. No. (laughs) But you survived, right? You stuck with it throughout this downturn. For a long period, yeah. And then ultimately, you know, I got fired as well. So that was the uh, sad story at the end of it. But of course, you all plan for it. Yeah. Because you know it's a high-risk job. And that's one of the reasons why you get a pretty good salary. Someone who worked in the industry said to me that if you don't keep moving up, eventually you're moved out. Yeah, I think that's possibly true. I mean, I did know people who kind of managed to survive until they retired, but it was very unusual. But along the way, you have a happy journey, right? You're making these big bonuses every year. But how does that actually work? From the external point of view, everyone just looks at it and goes, oh, bankers are just rolling in the money, getting these huge bonuses. But inside, is it kind of dog eat dog? I'd like to say no, but the answer is probably yes. I wouldn't say that it's not fun at all. That's certainly not true. And I massively enjoyed my time there because of the quality of the people that are drawn into it. So clever. And the ideas that you exchange with each other are just wonderful. But everybody lives in fear of a donut. This is a zero bonus because (laughs) that's the ultimate insult. Usually it happens after the banks had a big hiccup or one of these things like the global financial crisis. Do they deliver the news quite literally? You sort of open the letter and there's just a donut inside it. Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they should do. It's always delivered face to face. And everybody structures their year based on the bonus day. Usually it's in February, so they call it the Valentine's Day Massacre. That's usually because nobody's happy with what they get. Really? Yeah. There's no sort of counting your blessings. But think of it, right? If you get a high bonus, you eventually get acclimatised to that. And you kind of have a creep in terms of your living expenses, where you kind of spend more according to how much you earn. But... How does the bonus get determined for everyone? Is it just up to the discretion of the manager? Okay, bonuses have just been paid. Immediately, you notice that people take holidays, they're kind of relaxed in the office, and the whole mood changes. And then what you're planning at that point is how you're going to wow your manager with an amazing piece of work, which gets you a big bonus. So that's what you've got to do, what you've got to achieve before they decide the bonus is which is usually before the end of the year. So does each manager get like a pot of money and then they divide it how they want between their team? You were rubbish, here's your donut. You were great, here's your million pounds. Yep, that's how it goes. And you're not allowed to tell other people what you got. That's the advice you're given. I bet you can tell from people's faces. (laughs) (laughs) It was really weird because, you know, you'd be sitting at your desk, you see some people walking out of the office where they're telling them the numbers. You know, they've got a completely stony face. But it's funny because I remember one place where it was an IT department at an investment bank where 
apparently, as each person came out of the office, they immediately told everyone else what they got. And the manager was just getting angrier and angrier because I don't think legally they can stop you from telling other people your comp. The law in the UK, at least, is that you cannot prevent staff talking about their salary or compensation. You can stop them doing it on company time, I think. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But from a solidarity point of view, it's probably better if everyone shares their bonus information and knows what everyone else is getting because you're in a better position to negotiate, right? If you remove the asymmetry of information with the company, you're in a stronger position. But I have huge respect for companies where they do this, where it's completely transparent because ultimately your peers will determine whether you're worth it. And if they see that someone else has got a 10 times bigger bonus, well, you'll be thinking, well, why? And why am I at this company if they don't value me? And do you think bankers deserve this size of bonus that we hear about in the media? Well, I've heard it justified various ways, as you can imagine. One person told me they described it to their daughter in the following way, which is, if we worked at a supermarket, we'd get to take home some of the vegetables at the end of the day. If we worked at a pencil factory, we'd take home some pencils at the end of the day. We deal with money. (laughs) (laughs) That's ridiculous. I worked for the co-op when I was about 15 years old in the supermarket. And occasionally you would get these kind of compliance officers, would be the equivalent term, turn up at the door at the end of the shift and literally make you take your socks off to check that you weren't smuggling vegetables out of the co-op. So (laughs) I don't think this stands up. Well, they didn't even give you the wilted cheese sandwiches at the end of the day. No, that's a big no-no is stealing from your own shop. So I guess people in the industry are obviously going to try and justify their bonuses. But what do you think normal people like me, what do we most misunderstand about investment banks? I think people think it's all about the trading floor. But the thing people don't understand is the number of people who work in support roles, who are also really important to the bank and who aren't evil. And frankly, the traders aren't evil either. Often they're really nice people. And once you get to know them, they're just like anybody else. They just happen to earn these huge salaries. Of course. Because of the nature of their job. Though I reckon if you did the sort of psychological profiling, you'd find a higher degree of psychopaths at the top of investment (laughs) banks. You you look at the studies about CEOs and a lot of them do come out on the psychopath scale quite high. Yeah, the managers, I think that's probably true. But the sales and trading, you know, generally they're a really nice bunch. I really like them. Okay, and just to wrap it up, what do people in investment banking, what do the investment bankers misunderstand about investing? I think what they don't appreciate, what I didn't appreciate at the bank, was that a lot of the work that we did was pretty pointless because all of the research that was supposed to generate outperformance usually doesn't help. Because if it did, those asset managers would outperform, or at least some of them would consistently. But alpha the outperformance of markets is generally a myth. So I think that was misunderstood by the bank, or at least conveniently ignored by the bank. Because if you're publishing the research to help those managers, and it doesn't generate outperformance, well, what's the point of reading it? And the fact is that anyone can get the research, any of the fund managers, because the salespeople will be falling over themselves to give it to you. So that entire department probably was not cost-effective. And I think that's one of the reasons why when you unbundle it, they've been making lots of layoffs because it's not worth paying for. And then on the sales and trading side, it's all about volume. And one weird fact about markets is that people trade too much because the salespeople want them to, because that generates their profits. So this whole gravy train is salespeople try to get the buy side 
to trade more. That effectively reduces the gains for you as an investor, because if they're paying the money to the investment bank, it's not staying in the fund. So this whole thing is geared up to hurt people at the end of the process. So I think that whole ecosystem is flawed. Really, what we should be going for is a very slimmed down version of sales and trading. You don't really need salespeople for the majority of asset types. It's kind of an irony, isn't it, that the heart of capitalism, these investment banks, are kind of a misallocation of capital. Yeah, who would have thought it? Now, one of the things people like about our content is that I am a poacher turned gamekeeper. So if you want to hear how not to get ripped off by the investment banking industry, then why not join our community? You can learn more at pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what are systemically important banks? You heard a lot about this coming out of the financial crisis, where people said, we just didn't understand systemic risk. I think what wasn't clear leading into the financial crisis was how interlinked banks are with economies and with other banks. So if one bank went down, you might think that's the end of it. But what if the assets which are issued by that bank are owned by other banks? Well, suddenly that contagion could take down another bank. And if those banks go down, then a lot of lending to the economy literally disappears overnight. And so what you don't want is a systemically important bank, which is entangled with other systemically important banks. Systemically important because if it goes down, the entire system could crash. And there is legislation that came out with the financial crisis, both internationally and domestically in markets around the world, which kind of defines what is a GSIB, isn't it? A globally systemically important bank. And I think there's a recognition that you can't fully untangle all these banks. And so you have to regulate them more stringently. But they do have criteria which determine what level of systemic importance a bank has. Size is part of it, so the size of the balance sheet, because if you've got more stuff, then you have a bigger impact if you go down. But the recognition of the GSIBs is important because what the regulators can then do is say, well, you've got to hold more loss-absorbing capital. The banks don't like it because it means they're less profitable, they have less balance sheet leverage, that way they can't amplify their net interest margin as much. So banks don't like being GSIBs, that's a surprising thing. But it's not just the size of the balance sheet, is it, that matters? Yeah, it's also about things like cross-jurisdiction activity. How much stuff do they trade with other banks across the world? How complex are they? How complex is their balance sheet? Perhaps they have a whole family of subsidiaries and a really complex corporate structure. And the other question, of course, is whether another bank can step in to do what they do. Yeah, I think they refer to this as substitutability, which I quite like as a word. That's one thing you don't want to be as an employee. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Michael's great, but he's so substitutable. I'm not substitutable. (laughs) This is a hard job keeping this show on the road. I know, you're absolutely (laughs) unique, Michael. I was just joking. But what do they mean about substitution in the context of banks? It's like, if JP Morgan went down, could anyone rise up and be the new JP Morgan? That's exactly it. And could they take over their assets? That's the other big thing. Because during the financial crisis, some banks were bought by others with a gun to their head. We'd never see that again. (coughs) Credit Suisse, UBS. (laughs) (laughs) Although that one was a weird one, because you can bet UBS was just waiting for them to really screw up so they come up with some hardball offer. That's just a guess, by the way. 
Just a guess, says Roman. That's just a guess. But Credit Suisse was a GSIB. It was globally systemically important and it still went down or kind of got to the verge of going down before it was bought out. But then, you know, you go to Switzerland and you see UBS and you've got Credit Suisse. They were kind of similar. It was an overbanked market, I think, particularly for Switzerland, which is a pretty small country. Small country, but big balance sheet. Yeah. The thing with Credit Suisse is it was in bucket one of the GSIBs. There's actually five buckets. The higher the bucket number, the more GSIBY you are, the more important you are. There's no banks in bucket number five at the moment, at least. In bucket number four, there's just one, which is JP Morgan Chase. And then you go down the table, so bucket three, Bank of America, Citigroup, HSBC. Bucket two, you've got Bank of China and Barclays, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank. And then in bucket one, you've got some weird things like the Agricultural Bank of China. So I think the GSIB thing is useful for people who are saving money, because ideally what you want is something which is in that highest category. If it is, you can bet that the government won't let them go down without being substituted. So, for example, in the regional banking crisis that we saw in the US, we saw money moving from the regional banks to the really big GSIB banks. Yeah, JP Morgan saw its deposits increase, didn't it? Yeah. So it is useful for normal people, I think. But I guess the lesson from Credit Suisse is just because it's a GSIB doesn't mean it can't go down. And that's why it's important to have these living wills where the bank has a resolution mechanism for its own demise, which can't be pleasant for any institution. Of course, whenever you work for a company, it would be unthinkable to even talk about the company going down. But banks have to do that so that if it does happen, and it will happen because banks are designed to fail. This is another thing which I think people don't really appreciate. But when it does happen, there's rapid and orderly resolution. That's the goal here. And I like that the living wills have to include a public section that we can all read and a confidential section. How the sausage is made and going to be unmade in the worst case scenario. Yeah, some things you don't want people to know. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.